This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Gloves All we can say here at the Word of the Week is that we tried. We tried to meet winter halfway. We tried to talk about something pretty, something magical, related to winter. We talked about beautiful ice formations and innocent trickster spirits like Jack Frost. But winter just couldn't let up. Oh no. The snow, the ice, the high winds, the frigid temperatures, and the frozen pipes, and the winter storms, and the disrupted delivery services all continued. So, the gloves are off. Metaphorically. It's too cold to actually take off our gloves. Speaking of taking our gloves off, you've probably never wondered about the origin of the idiom about taking one's gloves off, have you? It seems patently obvious, doesn't it? Assuming you've heard the phrase before. If you hadn't heard some version of it before, it's an English language idiom. When the gloves come off, it means that an otherwise friendly or reasonable dispute is turning brutal and ugly. And when you threaten to take the gloves off, you're warning someone that you're about to lay into them. That you're no longer pulling your punches. Now you probably think, as lots of people do, that the phrase has its origins in the sport of boxing, right? In modern boxing matches, the boxers wear gloves to soften the impact of their punches somewhat. Thus, boxing is a civilized sport. Not like street brawling at all. If you take the gloves off, you're not playing at a sport anymore. You're in an actual fight. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, maybe. And the truth is, no one is quite sure of the real origin of the phrase, but there's another possible origin, and one that we, personally, find much more compelling. Because it's connected to another phrase, to treat something with kid gloves. The thing about the boxing explanation is that gloves are a fairly modern addition to the sport. Specifically, they were added in 1867 when John Chambers introduced his rules for a fair stand-up boxing match to replace the previous rules for a sport that was generally called prize fighting. Prize fighting was a revival of a classical Greco-Roman sport of two people trying to punch each other unconscious. Or dead. It was a popular spectator sport in ancient Rome, and to be fair, the Romans did use gloves. Sort of. They used leather thongs, weighted or studded with metal. It was called the cestus and there was even a more vicious spiked leather glove called the Myrmex, or arm piercer. In short, when the Romans wanted to be brutal, they put the gloves on. Oh, and because the ancient Roman sport was fought in a circle, we got the term boxing ring. But boxing was so brutal that it was eventually outlawed by the Romans around about 400 CE and it didn't reappear as a major sport until the late 1500s in England, specifically in London. London prize fighting was a bare-knuckle sport. It was like the Roman version before they invented the spiked glove thing, and it pretty much had no rules, at first. Gradually, between the 1600s and 1700s, the sport evolved, and eventually some rules were adopted. And those rules, the London prize fighting rules, did actually establish the basis for a lot of modern boxing rules. 
mainly the rules that say you're not allowed to bite or scratch, and you can't punch or kick an opponent when he's on the ground or when he's trying to surrender, and you're not allowed to hold rocks in your hands while you punch people. And those rules did curtail the substantial number of prize-fighting deaths. But the sport was still pretty brutal. And then, in 1867, a sportsman named John Graham Chambers, himself an expert rower, came up with the idea of having universities compete against each other in sporting competitions. In an official capacity, anyway. He founded a number of intravarsity, that means between colleges, a number of intravarsity competitions in rowing, racing, billiards, and a bunch of others. And he wanted to add prize fighting, boxing. But the sport was a bit brutal and uncivilized. So he drafted a set of rules for fair stand-up boxing matches, as he described them. And when those rules got put in front of a Scottish nobleman who held the title of Marquess, a title between an earl and a duke similar to the French Marquis, the title of Marquess of a region called Queensbury, the nobleman endorsed the rules officially. And thus were born the Marquess of Queensbury rules. And those rules included the introduction of boxing gloves. But gloves have been around for a long time, far longer than boxing was a sport, and they have a far more fascinating and important history than you might expect. First of all, the word glove. It comes from a Middle English word, glof, and that comes from an old Norse word, glofi, which basically means covering for the hand. And the reason the Norse word is the one we kept is probably because the Vikings had a tendency to steal gloves. No, really, we're not kidding. The thing is, clothing is valuable. And certain articles of clothing, those made of rare materials or those that were hard to produce, certain articles of clothing were very valuable. Especially to those who lived as much by raiding as they did by trading. Boots, for example. Boots are too valuable to leave unstolen, or to leave on the corpse of a body. And gloves are another example. Gloves are intricate and hard to make, but they are very useful. And so the Vikings were known for, among other things, stealing boots and gloves from those they killed. And sometimes they would even fight each other for choice bits of clothing. But gloves are older than the Vikings even. There's archeological evidence that Stone Age humans would wrap their hands in crude mitten-like articles to insulate and protect them. They protected against the cold in northern climates, and they protected the hands from cuts, grazes, and blisters when using wooden and flint tools. As a result, we have no idea who actually invented gloves. They've been around forever. One of the oldest pairs of gloves found come from 1400 BCE. They were a pair of linen gloves found in the tomb of King Tutankhamun. And it was among the Egyptians that gloves started to become about more than just keeping one's hands warm and free of blisters. They involved sewing together several intricate shapes, and linen and silk were expensive materials. So being able to afford a pair of linen or silk gloves was a sign of status. Some pharaohs of ancient Egypt wore gloves as a symbol of their status, wealth, and power. And wealthy Egyptian women would wear silk gloves as part of a beauty treatment. They would rub their hands with honey and fragrant oils to keep their skin moisturized and smelling nice, and then wear silk gloves to protect them. Recall from our episode about Feverfew that the Egyptians loved their natural medical and beauty treatments. 
After the Egyptians, both the Greeks and the Romans also used gloves for various purposes. In Homer's Odyssey, the titular Odysseus's father, Laertes, wears gloves to protect his hands and keep them clean while gardening. Seriously, one of the most well-known classical epic poems of all time actually goes out of its way to mention that a character wears gloves while doing his gardening. And then, there's the famous story of a legal trial that hinged around a glove. Yes, of course, we're talking about King Leotychidus of Sparta. Unfortunately, the glove fit, and so they couldn't acquit. The story starts in 491 BC in the city-state of Sparta. At the time, Sparta was ruled by two kings, co-kings, basically. They were named Demaratus and Cleomenes I. Now, at the time, a little empire you might have heard of in Asia Minor called Persia was doing the expansionist thing and trying to take over, basically, the world. And they had their sights set on Greece, and there was this island called Aegina in the Aegean Sea. Now, Aegina had a bit of a rivalry going with another Greek city-state, Athens, which you might also have heard of. It was basically a trade rivalry, no big deal. Until the Aganetans decided to basically submit to Persian rule. And this Athens and Aegina ended up at war. And Demaratus and Cleomenes disagreed over what to do. Cleomenes I wanted to side with Athens. Specifically, he wanted to capture Aganetan hostages and ransom them for a peace. Demaratus wasn't that fond of Athens and didn't want to make an enemy of the Persians, so he wanted to stay neutral. And the stalemate stretched on while the war between Athens and Aegina continued and the threat of a military invasion by the Persian Empire grew. But then, fortunately, the oracle at Delphi, pretty much the authority on everything because of the direct phone line with the gods at Delphi, suddenly declared that Demaratus was an illegitimate ruler and he had to be deposed. And he was. And he was exiled. As a side note, he did come back 20 years later in 480 BCE as part of the invading Persian army. But meanwhile, Demaratus's cousin, Leotychidus, assumed the co-throne alongside Cleomenes. And fortunately, he agreed with the whole hostage plan. And so Agonetans were kidnapped, and the hostages were sent to Athens to be ransomed for peace. And everything would have gone swimmingly. Except for the bribe. See, there was a mysterious pile of Spartan coins that had somehow appeared in the possession of the oracle at Delphi right before the gods told the oracle that Demaratus should be disposed in favor of Leotychides. And this became public knowledge just after the Agonetan hostages were captured and sent to Athens, but before anyone could sign a peace treaty. Whoops! Cleomenes ran away, and we don't know if he rode away on a horse, and even if he did, we couldn't make a white bronco joke considering broncos are specifically wild or feral horses of the American Southwest or Northern Mexico. Either way, 
his flight didn't help the pair look any less guilty. Leo Tikitis was arrested, and the Spartans handed him over to the Agonitans, where he was tried and convicted. However, the Agonitans let him go, because he promised that if they let him go, he would go right over to Athens right now and ask for the hostages back. And he sure did try to get the hostages back. He asked the Athenians very nicely. They said no. So Leotakidis returned to Sparta, explained the Agonitians had let him go, and took command of the Spartan navy. Which was good, because right after all of this went down, Persia decided to invade the heck out of Greece. And thus began the Greco-Persian Wars. But what about the glove? Well, we told you that story to tell you this story. Leotakides led a joint Spartan and Athenian naval fleet during the Greco-Persian Wars. And the fleet sailed around Greece and Asia Minor, liberating coastal towns that had fallen under Persian rule. And things were going really well. By 479 BCE, the Persians had been mostly driven out of mainland Greece, and the fleet was mostly doing cleanup work and punishing those who had conspired with the Persians. In 476 BCE, Leotychidus drives a small group of Persians out of Thessaly, and then discovers that the ruling family of Thessaly, the Aluads, had conspired with the Persians. And he's all set to go into Thessaly and, let's say, punish them, when all of a sudden, he decides at the last minute that the Aluads are actually totally fine and don't need to be punished. And he sails the fleet away. And this is where the glove comes in. See, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, there was this mysterious glove filled with a mysterious pile of coins that had mysteriously appeared in the possession of Leotakidis right before he decided that the wealthy Aluads had probably learned their lesson and should be left alone. And this became public knowledge. And so Leotakidis was arrested again, on bribery charges again. And he couldn't think of any good deals to cut or any clever phrases like, if the glove is full of money, you must let me go free, or something like that. And thus, he was sentenced to exile, and his house was razed. But his grandson did become the next king of Sparta, so there's that. But we digress. We were talking about gloves, right? Well, we can't talk about gloves in history without mentioning the gauntlet. After all, gloves were about protection, and in a battle you pretty much need all of the protection you can get. And so came the development of the war glove, the gauntlet. And that just comes from the Frankish and Proto-German word gaunt, which meant glove. But really, there isn't a whole lot to say about the invention of gauntlets except to say they were gloves made of sturdy materials designed to protect your hand during battle. It was just a logical extension of the glove idea. But the gauntlet did absorb a lot of symbolism, and that started around the 11th century with the Norman conquest of England. That's around the time we see European nobles and leaders wearing gloves and gauntlets as symbols of status and power and wealth. And that's mainly because that was the real start of feudalism in earnest, and feudalism was based on trading military service for political authority. 
and thus various traditions started to arise around the glove, around the gauntlet. For example, if a lord handed a knight a gauntlet or glove, that symbolically represented the acceptance of a pledge of fealty. The knight who received the glove became a vassal of the lord who gave it, and thus the gauntlet or glove became synonymous with the oath of fealty. And when chivalry became a thing, check out our episode about the paladin, when chivalry became a thing, the gauntlet became a symbol of the knight's honor. Thus, throwing a glove or gauntlet down at the feet of an opponent was a way of challenging them to a duel. And it wasn't just knights and lords. Ladies wore gloves as well. And if a lady presented a knight with a glove, it represented her favor. It was a benevolent gesture. Often a knight would keep said glove in a little bag around his neck. And in some places, men and women would exchange gloves during marriage ceremonies to symbolize their faithfulness. Of course, when you get down to it, this all makes sense. After all, the glove is a representation of the hand. And when you give someone your hand, you're pledging to stand by them. It was also during this time period that gloves started to become more and more embellished. The gloves of lords and ladies were often adorned with gold, silver, pearls, and jewelry. Women would splash theirs with perfume. The Catholic Church also accepted gloves as liturgical decorations. The lowest of priests would wear white gloves as part of their vestments to signify their purity. Bishops and higher-ranking church officials would wear gloves woven of golden thread. And so it was that starting in the 11th century and continuing through the 16th century that gloves became more and more embellished. And glove-making, which was an elaborate process as we mentioned, became a very important industry. By the 1100s, numerous guilds and companies popped up across Europe, professional organizations of glovers. One guild, the Glovers of Perth, were given an official royal charter of incorporation in 1165, and the French Company of Glovers organized in 1190. It was also around this time that the first Tanner's Guild was officially formed in England and that also helped make leather gloves more available to the common folk. As time went on, more elaborate materials were sought for finer and finer gloves, and the divide between gloves for the common people and gloves for the wealthy became more and more defined. Fine skins were sought for gloves for the wealthy, including lamb, sheep, doe, calf, and hare. For a while, between 1500 and 1700, chicken skin gloves became all the rage among refined women. The gloves were so thin and supple that they could be stored in a hollowed walnut shell. And like the Egyptians of yore, the refined ladies of the Renaissance and beyond would treat the insides of the chicken skin gloves with various oils and unguents to preserve the delicacy of their skin. And they would often wear their treated gloves overnight. The chicken skin used in these gloves was eventually supplanted by an even finer, more supple and thinner material. The skin of unborn cows. Of course, fabric also became more commonplace. Silk, satin, velvet, linen, and eventually cotton came into and out of fashion, as did decorative embellishments such as fringes, tassels, monograms, lace, and beadwork. 
fingerless gloves, which had been used since Roman times by those whose work required manual dexterity, also came into fashion as a way for the wealthy to show off their status with elaborate gloves while also showing off their rings. When perfuming became popular in the 16th century, so too did scented gloves. And among the various fashionable materials for gloves, one material that kept coming up for upper-class fashion gloves was the skin of the young lamb. That is to say, kid skin. Kid gloves were very fine, lightly colored leather gloves. In many places in Europe, the kid skin had to be imported, and so they were an expensive option. And the soft, supple leather gloves that were easily dirtied and meant to be worn around court by wealthy gentlemen became synonymous with a soft, delicate, and careful touch. And that is why we say that to treat something delicately or carefully is to treat it with kid gloves. It has nothing to do with treating it like you might treat a child at all. It's entirely to do with not ruining your expensive gloves made of imported baby lambs. And that brings us back around to where we started. By the 1500s and the 1800s, gloves were pretty much a part of the standard courtly fashion for wealthy and well-to-do gentlemen. Members of the nobility, the aristocracy, people who comported themselves in a certain way, and who understood etiquette and good behavior. And that is why there are some linguists and etymologists who theorize that those phrases about the gloves coming off actually had to do with someone dropping their gentlemanly behavior. With someone who was about to do something coarse, boorish, and ungentlemanly. But we digress. Our point is that we have now had enough of winter and its coarseness and rudeness. The gloves are coming off. It's time to drop the pretense of politeness. It's time for a bare-knuckle street brawl. It's time for us to talk about the ugly side of winter. The myths and legends about kidnapped nature deities and Japanese sun goddesses pitching sulky fits bitterly in caves while the world froze over and about the wars between the King of Oak and the King of Holly to return life to the world and about drunken debauchery and kings becoming slaves about the longest, darkest, coldest day of the year. At least it would be if we hadn't spent all our time talking about taking our gloves off. Next time, Winter. Next time. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash GM Word of the Week. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.